I think it's important that we have a self-reflection when we speak about growth. What kind of growth are we speaking about when we're saying something positive or negative about growth? And also, growth in what? Are you ready to be the change you want to see in the world? Are you ready to make choices that have a positive impact on your daily life, your community, and the planet? You are in the right place. I'm Anne-Therese Gennari. And I'm Robin Shaw. And this is the Hate Change Podcast. Per Espen Storknes, a psychologist with a PhD in economics, is a TED Global Speaker, climate strategy researcher, and serves as the Director for Center of Green Growth at the Norwegian Business School. An experienced foresight facilitator and academic, he's also a serial entrepreneur, including co-founding clean tech company Gasplas, and author of several books, among them the award-winning book What We Think About When We Try Not to Think About Global Warming, and his most recent book, Tomorrow's Economy, A Guide to Creating Healthy Green Growth. I learned all about Per Espen's work last summer when I dove deep into his book on human psychology and the many reasons for not acting on climate change. And as you may understand, I nerded out big time and have included a lot of his philosophies in my climate optimist classes and workshops. So it's a true honor to have a chance to finally sit down and speak with him. This episode is for all you climate activists out there, no matter where you are on this journey, if you are a beginner or a long-term eco-nerd who wants to learn how to better engage people into climate positive actions and mindsets. So without further ado, this is my incredible conversation with Per Espen Storkness. When I learned about your work, actually when I stumbled upon your one of your older books last summer, uh, it's called What We Think About When We Try Not to Think About Global Warming. I was just, you know, I, I was amazed. Um, being someone who's tried to figure out exactly that, like what are we trying to think about? What are we thinking about? And why are we not doing more about climate change? I knew, first of all, I had to get this book. And as I was reading this book, I took lots and lots of notes and I have integrated a lot of your thoughts into my climate optimist presentations and teachings over the past year. So needless to say, I'm a huge fan of your work and I'm so excited to finally have the chance to speak with you. So let's start right there. What made you write that book back in 2014? Good meeting you, Anteresa. Um, and lovely to be with you and speaking about this important issue, which I really awoke to about 12 years ago now, um, it was when I participated in a demo back in um, 2009 in um, the climate negotiations in Copenhagen. In two, uh, so the idea was that um, finally in Copenhagen, after an IPCC report and, and, and Al Gore's film on the inconvenient truth and a lot of um, engagement, the world would finally get a climate treaty in place. That was everybody's expectation. So Copenhagen Conference was kind of named the Hopenhagen Conference. But um, 
we walked through the streets, 100,000 of us. It was the world's biggest climate demo by then. And we were shouting, the time for action is now. And all the talks failed. Uh, the treaty collapsed. And um, everybody went home disappointed. At that point, I decided that I wanted to know why is it so difficult for people to really engage in the solutions about climate change? And why do people distance themselves from this topic in the way that I could see people around me? And particularly after that conference, the interest for climate went down the drain, along with the financial crisis uh, when that came up. Uh, and something called the uh, climate gate, which was a kind of conspiracy theories here about climate scientists. So there and then I decided, hmm, as a psychologist, I find this fascinating. Here we have this very clear scientific consensus about something that will threaten everybody's lives and particularly their children. And people say they are fond of their children, but obviously they're not because they're not taking care of them in the long term. How can that be? So I phrased the, the, the term, the psychological climate paradox there and then, which is that the more we seem to know about the climate, the, the less we engage in it, or at least the majority, not people like you, of course, but the majority of humans. And that right there, by the way, is a fact that I keep coming back to my presentations. It's astounding to me that the more we learn about climate change, the less we do. And I want to challenge you a little bit because I think, and I think this is what you ultimately came to. It's not that we don't care about future generations or our children, right? Because we do care. Um, but there are so many psychological factors at play that prohibits us or maybe just puts us in a blind spot of what we actually have to do right now. So do you want to share some of the insights um, that you found researching this book and, and that I've learned so much from reading this book, like what, what is it, why is it that we're not doing more about climate change and why haven't we done more over the years? Mm. Yeah, so um, with coming home disillusioned from that conference to Oslo, I started to do deep research into what philosophers, sociologists, psychologists, anybody really that have written about, uh, not the climate as such, but the human brain's response to climate science. Um, and one of the key findings early on was that there is something called the information deficit approach among climate scientists. Now that, that, that sounds kind of strange, but you can imagine that um, among scientists, there's this idea that um, people in general are like empty buckets. They have no knowledge. They have no idea about how the climate system works. So if you're a scientist then and you've studied the climate, you know all about it, but the people out there, they know next, nothing, they're empty buckets. So I assume they're lacking of information. Now my job then is to tell them that. So I, I go about making slides that show graphs and um, showing measurements um, and telling everybody that CO2 is accumulating in the atmosphere at an alarming rate and the PPM level is measurable and it's increasing, blah, blah, blah. And we have RCP scenario this and RCP scenario that. As if all that information, when kind of sent out uni, um, unidirectionally towards the audience, that they will, their empty buckets will fill up. And when the head then is full of real climate science, 
then they will change their attitudes. And after changing their attitude, they will change their behavior to align with what we, the experts, are saying and um, what is needed to be done. This has been, unfortunately, the dominant rational mode of climate science communication since, let's say, the mid-80s. Now, real humans aren't like that. Their brains aren't empty. Actually, they're all full of thoughts and filters and opinions and worries and, and, and emotions. So, you know, imagine yourself an ordinary day. Um, you're worried about what your friends think about you or what your, you say to your boss at work or how your kids are doing. That's what we are thinking about. We're not thinking about um, concentration levels of CO2. So that rational information approach is uh, woefully inappropriate and uh, so insufficient. But climate scientists, being experts, still think they should do that. But it's a kind of superstition in a way. Now, <laughs> if you then uh, recognize that this information rational approach is insufficient, um, you may want to know exactly why it doesn't work. And that's where the five psychological inner defenses come in. And after going through lots of different studies, then where you know different scientists were finding different, shall we say, ways of describing those thought patterns, I ended up with the five Ds, which is a new model that I made, but based on building on a lot of others. The five Ds are psychological distancing, doom overuse, the dissonance barrier, and the denial. And finally, I had to cheat a little bit with the last one, identity. <laughs> and um, I don't know, do you want me to take you through all of these five briefly or... Yes, any, any I, I particular one. Well, I I do. I would. I I could go ahead and try to explain them myself because I do talk about these in my classes, and of course, I attribute this um, this module to you because I think it's just it really speaks to you know why we haven't why we aren't doing more about climate change, and I think it just provides this understanding of like, okay, I'm only human after all. And so let's stop being frustrated and understand what's really going on under the surface. And as I know that I can work around these barriers and actually mm. get into empowered action. So yeah, I think we should go through them quickly. Uh, let's start with distance because I think this is like ultimately like where we start with climate change and correct me if I'm wrong, but distance means that for for most of us, at least for a long time, it might be changing just recently because wildfires and flooding and all these things are starting to become almost a norm in many places around the world. But it, climate change has felt so distant to us, either you know it's going to happen in the future or it's happening in other parts of the world. And so we are lacking that sense of urgency that this is something that's happening to me personally, and therefore mm. we don't feel the need to act. Yeah. So... This starts with something we call evolutionary psychology, which is a discipline that studies how evolution has shaped the human body and particularly brain, the way we think. And the human brain is a fantastic organ that is able to filter out, you know, billions of pieces of information during a day. Um, and during evolution, human brains learned that it's most important to pay attention to threats that are very close. So if there is somebody with a club behind that tree, or if there's a 
tiger or if there is a snake or whatever, um, that gains the top priority. That's how the human brain is, is, is designed. And then climate scientists, without knowing much about evolutionary psychology, have been, um, without wanting to, um, really missed how to engage the human brain's risk perception. And they do that in four ways. First, by positioning climate uh, disruptions as far off in time. So typically, they have been speaking about um, two-degree target by the end of 2001. That's a century. Now, if you position something a century out, or five, 50 years, or even 10 years out, you have now only 10 years left to solve the crisis. Then you know the human brain, we are more interested in what I'm going to have for dinner, who will be coming to the party tonight, um, uh, will I uh, survive this uh, walk across the street, <laughs> whatever that is kind of right in front of me. That's where my attention goes in terms of time. And then there is the other issue that you touched upon, Anteresa, which is the, 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 the places. Where is this happening? And at any time, there may be wildfires going, but I only see those on television, and it's always somewhere else. Um, very few people are in the midst of a wildfire or a hurricane or a flood at any one point of time. When they are, then suddenly they're all focused on that fight-flight response, and they're full of adrenaline and doing everything they can. But at any time, that's 0.001% of humanity, which is in the middle of this kind of crisis in terms of their place. So it's distant in time, distant in place, but also distant in terms of um, um, responsibility. Because um, I can say, you know, these, this, these are issues that the president, the politicians, or the CEOs of the world's biggest companies, they should do. And that's a long social distance from me because I don't know these people. Um, I don't know those who make the, the decisions in terms of billions of dollars or building coal fires or stopping sorry, coal power plants or coal mines. So they, they are far away from me in terms of my uh, social links. And finally, in terms of uh, not just time, space, and the social, but also in terms of impact, there are, if I do something, let's say I go for a vegan dinner today, then there are very, very long, uh, so we say, causal chains between what I do and the effect it has on climate. So in all those four dimensions, time, space, uh, responsibility, and, and impact, whatever I do doesn't seem to impact this huge distant problem. That is why, even though we hear about climate science on the news and we hear the alarm, um, within a few hours, the brain has, so to speak, distanced it out of uh, existence. And we think about narrow things again. Right. And I want to clarify here, it's not about the, it's not that we don't care about future generations. It's not about, you know, it's not that we don't care about polar bears and other people. And, you know, we obviously understand that 10 years is not a long time, right? Like we understand mm. that 10 years from now, I'm still going to be around. <laughs> so are my kids. So like, we need to act on this. But it is so interesting, I think, to understand that it doesn't matter how much we care. Um, because our brain just isn't wired that way, right? It's like, 
as, as you know, as long as it's not literally right in front of me right now, like, okay, my, my house is getting flooded. I need to escape. Like, yep. unless we have that sort of urgency, it isn't going to trigger the response. Um, and I, and I call these, um, I actually made up my own little formula and it, it exists of two different kinds of change. One, one is fear-based change. So it's the kind of change we get to when we feel like we have no other choice. So we're trying to avoid something we don't want to happen. Um, mm. and so that's like, you know, escaping some sort of some uh, wildfire or escaping some sort of really critical situation that's fear-based change. And we, we can get to that change very fast. If we have to, humans are pretty incredible when it gets, you know, comes around to it, um, but unless you have that sense of urgency um, and, and personal connection, like you, in, like if there's any sort of distance, distance basically that fear-based change just won't come about. Um, but the other part of it is that there's a different kind of change, which is what I call the positively incentivized change. Um, and that's the kind of change that you choose and that you work upon um, and that you're excited about. So like instead of trying to avoid something to happen, you want something to happen and you're working towards that goal. Um, and we, we're getting ahead of ourselves. But I think that's where I've landed recently is like our work here for a climate just future is about figuring out what is the world that we actually do want and how do we bring that one closer. Um, but let's get back to the five Ds because I do want to go through them real quick. So the next one is doom. And I think this is really interesting too. Um, and it's a lot about how we talk about climate change, you think about climate change and the sort of actions we're trying to install um, to, to avoid climate change. Do you want to talk about that real quick? Sure. So <clears throat> you're right that uh, people do really care about both on other species and, and their children and the earth. And if you ask people if they are fond of nature, everybody says yes. But the issue is that um, it kind of uh, feels as if it's not connected to me when I'm doing my everyday life. So that's what the distancing does. Then you mentioned fear. And this is also something that has been overutilized by climate communicators that they are sounding the alarm bell again and again and again. And I mean, it's not that climate scientists are alarmists. Actually, they're quite cautious bunch, but climate science as such is alarming. So it's very natural to speak about potential catastrophe, disasters, um, the end of society, etc. And this is what I call the doom framing that um, it's very easy being in a Christian culture to end up within a doomsday framing. Um, it is appropriate because climate is an existential threat. However, when you overuse that frame in communication, and if your goal is to kind of create engagement, then by overusing the doom frame, we create often the opposite of what we want. Now, there are three main by effects of overusing the doom, by, doom um, frame which is one that people habituate. That's a psychological term for getting used to things. <laughs> so if you heard the alarm one year and you heard it the next year and you heard it the next year and the next year, then the fifth year, your amount of, of response, whether it's fear or arousal or anger, or whatever, goes down. And then the communicators have to shout even louder for the same level of emotional response to happen. And after habituation, um, you may remember that uh, the next time you hear about it, the previous time was kind of uncomfortable. It reminded you of death and, and, and catastrophe and, and, and suffering. So the brain now 
I've coded this climate issue as a doomsday thing that's better to avoid because it's associated with negative emotion and fear and guilt. Suddenly, then it, it starts to shift the filter or the channel. I, I, I switch to something else. I, I go to another YouTube channel, whatever. Um, I just want to get out of the way from that guy who's going on endlessly about the climate. So after habituation, we get um, avoidance behaviors. And finally, we may get stereotyping of the messenger. So anybody who speaks about the climate is just another doomsday prophet or a kind of end of the times guy. Uh, and they're party, party pooper. Party pooper and tree <laughs> huggers and, and, and goddamn uh, greenies or whatever. So you get all those um, by effects of using the, the, the catastrophic framing. So that's the doom uh, barrier. And I also feel like often when we talk about what can we do to avoid the climate disaster, it's often, you know, in terms of lack and sacrifice, like we have to drive less, we have to travel less, we should eat less meat, we should do less of this, we should be shopping less, and we have to cut down on our consumption. So although these might actually bring more value, like if we commute less, we have more time to spend with our family. If we buy less shit, yeah. we have more money to actually enjoy doing things we want to do. So like, although ultimately these all bring good stuff, when we talk about them in terms of loss and sacrifice, there is that psychological response of like, oh, I don't want to do this, right? It's like, exactly. that sounds awful. Exactly. So when you talk about doom and loss and sacrifice, you're setting up people for dissonance because uh, you know they're going to do this anyway and dissonance mm -hmm. is the third barrier so now we're doing things we know we kind of shouldn't uh, i'm flying because it's the only way to get back to my family to visit them i eat meat because everybody else do and uh, if i don't have a car i can't do my get my get to job so um then i'm forced to behaviors that my mind brain knows is kind of destructive and this tension or a conflict, inner conflict between what I do and what I know. That's what psychologists call the cognitive dissonance. And it's uncomfortable. So the brain wants to get rid of the dissonance and then it comes up with self-justifications. I can say, for instance, you know, that my neighbor, he has a bigger car than I do, or my sister, she flies much more than I fly, or um, somebody else is eating more meat or whatever. So um, I can also say to myself, for instance, that, you know, climate has always been changing. So nature is used to this. It's not necessarily humans. Uh, maybe it's the sun after all. Uh, and this way also, I, I get rid of the dissonance by telling me something that my brain feels more comfortable hearing. So I don't have to feel that inner conflict. If I do this for some time, the dissonance is automated and then it becomes denial. So now we've done distance, doom, dissonance, and we come to denial. And climate denial has been used as a kind of um, insult to the other guys that are not uh, really as knowledgeable and scientific and moral as I am. But denial is really something else. It's, it's the capacity of the human brain to both know something and live as if you do not know it at mm -hmm. the same time. And... Uh, the weird thing is that we all do it uh, in, in several uh, ways. So denial is not something strange and foreign, something that exists in all of us. For instance, if you have in your family or a job, somebody who drinks too much, and you've seen that this, this woman or this man has a problem with alcohol, but nobody's speaking about it, and, and he is even driving a car, she is driving drugs or whatever, 
but it's a secret. So we pretend to everybody that this is not the case. We both know something and we live as if we do not know it at the same time. And it's very similar to the issue with climate. We both know the climate is fucked, but we live as if we don't know it because it's too inconvenient to go thinking about it all the time. Right. And I want to just, yeah, I wanted yeah. to say too, I, I feel like we have demonized denial, as you said. And I think something I've learned on this journey is that a little bit of healthy denial sometimes is necessary, right? It's mm. like, because once yeah. you start to open up the, you know, the gates to awareness of climate change, it become it can be get so overwhelming where you do end up in this dissonance and denial. And when you get too stuck there, you don't do anything. So I think strengthening the muscle of wanting to do better, but taking it bite sizes. So like, okay, I can get this much today. And then I have to apply a little bit of healthy denial and I'll come back to it tomorrow because otherwise we will burn out and, and yeah. not get to any action at all. So I just want to like throw that in there. You're spot on. And if you have a cancer, or whatever, you can't think about that cancer all the time. You need right. to deny you have a cancer to live a, a good life. Uh, however long you're going to live, well, you might get well, you might get sick again, but if you're kind of unable to deny it for a while, uh, then you won't have a good moment uh, in any case. So you're right. right. Healthy denial can be healthy, health, helpful. But of course, um, if <laughs> if you never think about it, then, yeah. uh, <laughs> then you never really kind of build it into a, a sense of who you are, then it becomes destructive. Right. And that's the, the bridge to the last one, identity, which is our self-image um, or uh, our sense of self-esteem which comes from um, who I am as a participant in society. I, I, I could say I'm a psychologist or I'm a chauffeur or I'm a baker or I am a, an oil worker or I am a financial analyst. And all these kind of professional identities, uh, social identities, um, political identities, they are in a way, a way of being in society that gives me a sense of value of who I am, what is what is worth living for, being. And the problem, of course, is that if my identity, uh, let's say as a financial analyst of, of petroleum companies or as a, uh, a, a bus driver or whatever, and then somebody comes and says to me, well, actually, um, all your work in terms for the of that industry is destructive, uh, then this will be perceived not as a scientific fact, but as an attack on me. Mm-hmm. Suddenly, I feel that this other guy is undermining my sense of self-worth. And then the automatic response is to shoot back. I will go, no way. Um, and then I'll find ways to insult the other guy back. And this is, of course, where climate conversations go really bad. Yeah, and we tend to forget that we rely on someone else's identity that we might be attacking to be able to do the things that we're doing, right? Like, I think that yeah. goes back to the dissonance part of like, okay, we know we need change. We want to get to that change as soon as possible. But then you look around yourself and you realize, well, my life is designed not to help climate change, but to actually fuel it. And so how, where do I even start? Um, and so it can be a very overwhelming process. Um, and, and I think the work that you're doing here is so important. And I know we went through these kind of in, in, in depth and detail right now, but I'm happy we did it because I think this really lays the ground of, you know, understanding that there are a lot of psychological factors at play. Um, 
And now when you, the listener, have learned about these, I really challenge you to think about them uh, and to see how you can maybe work around them to be thinking about it, like bring it closer to yourself. Don't think of it as something that's happening in the future or other parts of the world. And if you are to think of climate change as something that is here right now, what like what can you do right now to get to action and how can you actually start getting excited about that? So removing that doom and gloom um, and, and dissonance and really start to think about like, okay, we're all in this together. I play a part both in fueling it, but also, you know, in, in being able to, to change things for the better. So what can I do today? Um, yeah. and, and on that note, I do want to shift over to your newest book, which I think is seems to be another gift to the world. I'm yet to read it myself, but I learned about it on, online. And the book is called Tomorrow's Economy, A Guide to Creating Healthy Green Growth. I couldn't think of a topic that's more important right now. And it really comes back to what we just talked about, how you know we live in a world that is built around this one economy that's about constant growth. And that the the book that you wrote is beyond this usual like pro-growth versus anti-growth debate, which I think it's actually, we just get lost in that debate because we need some sort of growth, right? But instead you call for healthy growth. So I'm really curious to learn more about this. Uh, what is healthy growth in your opinion? <laughs> yeah. So first, um, from those barriers we just discussed, um, it's very kind of um, disencouraging for let's say the majority of people who are not climate activists to, to hear about all this climate stuff um, because you should stop doing this, stop doing that. I can't work with this. I can't invest in that. I have to cut uh, my travel. I have to um, get, uh, get rid of my car. Uh, so there seems to be kind of just um, uh, threats or extortions to kind of cut things, turn things down, stop. Um, stop everything and this narrative of, of stopping and cutting down um, is making a lot of unnecessary resistance so rather than the framings of, of doom um, and uh, loss and sacrifice I think we need a narrative or story about how we create a better more vibrant um, uh, economy uh, where people are served in, in ways that improve their prosperity and, and well-being and sense of togetherness. So we need a shift in the economy uh, so that everybody working in it can see themselves as contributing to a way forward rather than being um, told by others that they're uh, destroying the world by their participation in, at work. So that's the whole purpose of healthy growth, to outline a description, a credible, plausible trajectory from where we are now to an economy that works well within what's now called planetary boundaries. I mean, that doesn't destroy nature, but actually start to regenerate nature. So we get better soils, better forests, along with better beer and better clothes and better mobility with less pollution, and we can have healthier, longer lives where there is more joy and where there is less of that sense of, of loss. Um, now, this may sound like a kind of Pollyanna future where everything is just bright. So um, I've broken it down in the book, being kind of really tough-minded about it in terms of actually what are the key steps for each business to make 
what are the key steps for each individual to make and what are the roles of government and it should be objective in a measurable way now the key is we won't change the economy in a moment um, because these are deep structures i mean the roads we have the buildings we have the energy systems we have they take a lot of time to to change so how do we go from, I mean, the, the, the banners on the demo says uh, systems change, not climate change. But how do you know whether you have a systems change or not? Mm. Um, how can you recognize uh, that the system is changing or what part of it is changing while other parts of the system is remaining the same? How can you know if a company is doing its fair share or not? How can you know if an individual is contributing or not, if yourself are a part of the problem or part of the solution. So the, to answer those questions, in the book, I provide two compasses that help you map the rate of change. Because what we need is anybody, whether they're in petroleum business or financials or the construction industry or mobility or in schools or whatever, uh, we need everybody to change the way they are using resources, the way we are having a footprint of nature. So the idea is that we can grow more, so we will have more with less footprint because all the technologies we have are actually available today. So if you go from a gas or an oil burner to a solar panel on the roof or a solar heater, then you have now more or less energy for free and you burn less and there's less pollution and you have a low, lower bill, energy bill. So what's not to like? Um, that's what I mean with a healthy growth. You get more of what you want, a comfortable temperature with less of what we do not want, which is uh, exhaust, plumes, CO2 emissions uh, and, and uh, polluted air. The good thing is when you start really looking into it, that which I have done now since I published my previous book, such kind of smart, green, healthy solutions are available in all the major sectors of the economy. It is available in industry, in construction buildings, it's available in food sector, in the transport sector, in the energy sector. Uh, it's an incredible amount of innovations available. We just have to scale them up. And that's what healthy growth does, uh, or at least half of healthy growth. Healthy growth uh, is that exactly that. Yeah, I, I I love this concept. I think for many people, it's such a new and foreign idea. Even you know, because we're so used to thinking about like, well, consumerism means that we're adding stuff that we don't need, or you know, mm. like whatever I do, like it's it's we get so stuck even thinking about what the future could look like because we're so used to what the system looks like today. And like you said, if we keep seeing on banners like we need system change, not climate change, um, and we tend to forget that we are the system, we make up the system, um, and we can start changing the system today. And it's not going to happen in a dime, like you said. It's not going to be like one day. Okay, now we stop the world. We're five hours. And then after five hours, we continue with a new system. Like that's not how it works. So we need to start implementing these changes gradually. And, and I think that's what your book is, you know, aimed to do. And some of them, you, you talk about four growth types, which is 
Um, a is linear and more, which ultimately it's, you know, bigger. We need linear and more, which is the economy we are operating for from today. And then we have linear and better, which you also describe as mastery. Then there's cyclical and more, which is abundance. So how can we keep more coming and coming and coming? And then the last one is cyclical and better, which uh, strives for complexity. And so would you say that the complexity um, economy module is the one that we should be striving for? Um, the basis for outlining these different archetypal images of growth is that, as you briefly touched upon, that people tend to become either pro-growth or anti-growth. And conventionally, this has been along with the left-right axis in politics. So um, the right conservative part of the spectrum um, see growth as good. Uh, the more, the merrier. So if you can grow the economy, the GDP, the, the profits, everything, then people can prosper more and we have more of all kinds of things. And we are healthier because we can buy even health services or whatever we need. Um, so growth is more or less always good. Well, the environmental bunch and some on the left see, see growth as being uh, kind of rooted in colonialism and exploitation and extraction and economic growth is actually destroying the world and the more economic growth we have the less animals the less wild forests the less birds and um, the less really of the good life now this anti versus pro growth thinking really comes down to um, an impoverished idea of growth itself because there are many types of growths. I like to add the S to that word, not just one growth, but growths. Mm -hmm. And um, unfortunately, a lot of the economic growth discussion has gone stuck in this first version you mentioned of linear and more. So this is the kind of Trumpian growth where the higher the, uh, the, your, your tower is, the better it is. The more gold you can accumulate, the, the, the more grandiose you are. Um, but, uh, but fortunately, there are other types of growth. So if you go along with the environmental bunch and talk with growth of, of flowers or growth of uh, potatoes or growth of trees, then uh, you see that like growth, is, growth is cyclical. Uh, at each autumn, all the kind of uh, the, the photosynthesis um, process goes into the, the roots and in spring, uh, it comes up again. And after... Um, an octopus dies, it has children, which comes back with, a, or, or insects can have thousands and millions of offspring. So uh, this is a cyclical type of growth, which they tend to like. Now they like growth, but they didn't like that linear type of growth. And that's why I think it's important that we have a self-reflection when we speak about growth. What kind of growth are we speaking about when we're saying something positive or negative about growth? And also growth in what? What is it that we are growing? Uh, like are we growth in well-being or growth in um, resource consumption or growth in CO2 emissions or growth in healthy soil? So um, we should be more careful about when we speak about growth, growth in what and exactly what is our guiding image when we talk about growth? If we're not aware of that, we end up in these very fruitless um, conversations where the, the greenies say, no, 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 and the conservatives go, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and uh, we never get um, 
and uh, moving in a better direction. And I think too, also just on, a, on an individual level, because I actually find myself in these conversations fairly often these days, um, because as you said, us climate nerds or whatever we want to call us, um, I think we're stuck in the middle of like, okay, but I, I do want abundance and growth for myself. But I also have this dissonance within me where like, well, the current economical, economic model does not allow for me to, to achieve that without killing the planet. But I, mm. I challenge myself for like, well, you know, what if what we are paying money for is actually really nutritious, locally produced foods? Um, mm. You know, like what, like what are, what is value and what can you make money doing? And maybe we figure out an, a new system that doesn't involve money, but abundance is still going to be there. And I think we need to tell ourselves that it's totally okay to achieve uh, and strive, uh, want to achieve and strive for personal abundance because i think like trying to think of anything less is it's not beneficial either for ourselves or for the world and i love this concept of like cyclical and more and cyclical and better right it's like and i, I always come back to this phrase like how can we do better how can we co-create a better world and that is yeah. taking away from the idea of perfection because perfection what is that even and we don't even know what that looks like yet because i think we will figure that out as we continue on um, but to con constantly strive for better and, and asking the right questions and wanting to figure that out. But coming back to this idea of like more doesn't necessarily mean worse, right? No. More can be more if it's the right, more can be better if it's the right kind of more. So uh, I'm getting very it's like, uh, um, philosophical here, but thank you so much no, for, for bringing in this concept. It's, it's very concrete as well. If you walk into a forest and have a look at the roots and the intermingling of the roots between the trees and the fungi and uh, the, the mycelium in there and all the different ants, and then this, grow, this, this forest may have been growing for thousands of years, uh, but it's not growing in height necessarily. It's not necessarily getting always taller trees, but there is a, a growing complexity and richness uh, mm. and variety and interaction. So you can grow in exponential interactions more or less forever, like evolution has done, but you don't have to necessarily um, grow taller or bigger or more massive uh, in the sense of of, of uh, taking over the whole world with your ecosystem. So ecosystems are really masters in teaching us uh, from nature uh, how we can become uh, more nuanced, more cyclical and better uh, in eternity. So there's no end to growth if yeah. you understand growth in, in that way. Uh, and the same thing with, of course, a personal growth. There's no end to the amount of thoughts or the imagination or the, the quality of the relationships you may have to other, be, other people and animals. So we are incredible beings in this world with the capacity of entering into an endless variety of relationships. And that's the beauty of being alive. And that's the type of growth that I would say we would never get tired of. So growth is fantastic if you understand it in a healthy way. Yeah, I, I was just going to say the same thing, like growth is also, you know, what, how much wonder can you bring into your life? You know, how much can you grow inwards to yourself mm. and explore that area? It's not just about having more stuff or having a bigger house or having more cars and growing and becoming bigger and better. It's like growth is eternal. And like how, how much depth can I bring to my life? You know, how much value in each relationship can I, can I grow into? Mm, they're very simplistic ideas of growth out there, and we need, in a way, to grow up 
in terms of our ideas and thinking of growth. Yeah. Okay. So this is this is a wonderful conversation. I feel like myself shifting away in different um, <laughs> different spaces. But but let's bring it back real quick before we have to wrap this up um, because I feel like your book provides some really rational, um, centralized steps towards this, this healthy growth. But what are some of the challenges or maybe backlashes even that you are anticipating as we're trying to push this new growth, not push, but trying to integrate this new growth into the world? What might be the, the response from, from companies and, and countries as we try to shift into a more cyclical world? Yeah, maybe the main challenge is not just getting green growth in the sense of um, more quality with less material use, but it is also um, growing more inclusive. So it's the social dimension of healthy growth, which is the most challenging. Um, so what we need is uh, to move out of uh, what we can call extractive um, rentier type of growth, where it's mostly about uh, grabbing as much financial assets uh, and the highest growth in the return on investment, and then seeing how we can grow in terms of equality instead. And this is something that markets alone probably will never provide unless they're guided by um, wise market design in from policy and, and government. So how can we grow in a way that's more inclusive so that the top one to 10% doesn't run off with all the gains, but the 40% poorest get an increasing share of that economic growth. Um, we can measure that in, on, in terms of of company, so what is the top 10% salaries relative to the 40% bottom here? Is that increasing or decreasing? The same thing with a city or a state or a nation. We should have a compass that shows us whether we are more moving towards more inequality or more equality every year. And that is maybe an even deeper challenge than solving the pollution, energy, and food crisis we currently have. Do you think we can maintain our current like quarterly earnings, um, stakeholder, sorry, shareholder um, economy that we have now where companies need to show their shareholders, you know, that there is economic growth every three months or every six months in Europe? Do you think we can maintain that or does that have to shift? Well, there we have kind of good reason for being disillusioned with business in that way because we've had this maximum maximizing shareholder uh, norm for about 40 years but um, it is as easy really as to change the articles of association um, if you say that this company is not just about maximizing shareholder gain but also stakeholders meaning um, nature farmers um, communities, uh, employees, etc., then the management can easily uh, adjust its prioritizations accordingly. Um, the main thing here is um, uh, that co co uh, corporates also uh, need to incorporate uh, more um, long-term goals that are mutually reinforcing along with the goal of profitability. So on, on one 
new thing here is the emphasis on what is called ESG recently in business. Mm-hmm. It has to, it's called environment, social and governance. And it is a new requirement for companies to report on what they're doing, not just in terms of profits, but also in terms of these other broader objectives. And 10 years ago, I was kind of disillusioned, but over the last two years, billions of dollars and thousands of companies have thrown themselves around now to start to measure and report and improve on not just profit, but also environment and social goals. And that's what I write about in my book, a very, very um, uh, uplifting and um, and um, engaging uh, trajectory. So if we can continue that, rather than people becoming disillusioned and, and with the hype of ESG, but actually taking that into a systematic approach and even letting boards uh, uh, being more influenced and informed by it, uh, and also maybe considering becoming what's called a benefit corporation, uh, then you can take that into your DNA, which is the articles of associations for companies. And all these are ideas uh, that are spreading and that I'm describing uh, in my book and how to implement them. And everyone needs to get your book, obviously, uh, not just companies, <laughs> but individuals too. But yeah, I want to, first of all, before um, I want to, that actually leads me to my next question, but I just want to emphasize that ESG goals are becoming, you know, something that almost every company is talking about. And it's already proving that if you tend to these goals, you actually have a better financial return as well. So it's a good yeah. investment. And I think it just speaks to that things are already happening. We have to remember that. So moving away from again, the doom about everything, like there are shifts mm. already underway. Um, and we have to really remember that. Um, and Incredible. I want to just ask, yeah, I, I want to ask you because I think, I mean, maybe someone is listening who does have a company or has a um, managing role at a company, but as individuals, what, what can we do in help fueling and supporting the shift into the green economy? Yeah, without businesses taking action, government taking action, not much will happen, but they will not take much action if individuals do not take action. So that's what I call the triangular system. Individuals push business, business can push government, and government can push individuals, and that's a self-reinforcing cycle. So there are four main roles that each individual can do something within. The first is the obvious one, the consumer. I can buy more green stuff and less of that gray polluting stuff. I know it's hard, but if I spend a little bit more time, then each month I can get a little bit better. So. Don't be too hard on yourself. Just be happy if you can be able to shift gradually towards um, greener, more local, less polluting stuff. Second is that we all own something, whether it's uh, a, maybe a car or an apartment or a computer or uh, some funds. Um, uh, maybe I have a small savings account. Whatever I have, I can shift that towards a greener investment. So... If I have a house or a garden, I can make that a little bit greener. If I have a car, I can try to make that um, maybe into a shared car. Uh, If I have um, a savings account or funds, I can ask my managers or the fund managers how much they are putting into ESG of that. Or if, uh, if they are not moving it, I could change to somebody else, maybe a pensions account, whatever it is. And finally, um, of course, I have a job either as a student or as an employee or an employer, and then I can try to make that uh, change in the team, in the project, in, the, in my division towards greener products, greener um, projects. 
And finally, as a citizen, um, in, t- in addition to being a consumer, owner, worker, I'm a citizen. And as a citizen, I can influence my uh, elected officials. I can raise my voice. I can vote. I can um, write stuff, whether it's on newspapers or in, on the Facebook or whatever, that help shift the conversation. So all those four roles contain lots of opportunities for every individual to be part of the solution. And it's very hope generating. When you start to do something, you get more hope. So hope lies by actually taking action, not from, I shall we say, long-term prediction of how the future will play out. And here on Hey Change Podcast, we call that being an optimist in action. Um, that is how you get to action every single day. And you gain, regain that power and you, you say to yourself, what can I do? You know, I'm, it's what do I already have and how can I shift and start building that better from within the framework I already exists in. And, and as you start making these small changes, you know, maybe mm. seemingly small changes, you start to feel incredibly good about it. Um, and you start to feel all sorts of good stuff in your body, which I call the happiness hormones. Um, and it's a really awesome way to live life, to be an optimist in action and, and generate hope on a daily level. Um, yep. Okay, Paris, Ben, this has been so incredible. I feel like I could talk to you for hours and hours, but I know I need to let you go. But before I leave you, here is the multi-million dollar question. Um, are you a climate optimist? And if so, why? <laughs> yeah, well, um, optimism is a way of looking at the world. I can pick it up and, and, and look as if through a pair of glasses out or one eye out on the world from an optimistic lens. Um, I can also choose a pessimistic lens and see the world uh, in a pessimistic way. And um, uh, some people say, well, you shouldn't be optimist or, or pessimist. You should be a realist, something which is usually in the middle, the gray middle in between. But I prefer, no, no, no. You should be wildly optimistic and we should be wildly pessimistic at the same time. In that way, we can see more both of the light side or the, and the darker side of the world. And then um, just as we have two eyes, left and right, and together they give us a sense of depth in the same way optimism and pessimism, when applied, give us a sense of depth in our perception. Then um, I, I'm again skeptical of the word optimist because it means that I'm kind of expecting uh, a positive outcome of stuff. Um, which is not necessarily my analysis. I might expect things to go badly, but I may be full of hope in any way because um, I'm doing something about it. I call that a sense of grounded hope in the sense of being grounded in who I am, my values, my, my capacity to do something, the sense of being alive, me participating in the air. Uh, I can see the sun right now in between the branches and the light flowing from those leaves, they make me feel grounded in the here and now, um, standing on earth, feeling gravity. And through all those perceptions and all those actions that I'm doing, I feel a sense of profound hope. Um, Not because I know everything will be well, but because I'm doing something. And that is how I am, if you will, optimistic without being optimistic. Grounded hope. I might have to add that to my vocabulary list. That is exactly what I'm striving for. And there's so much value to be found in in grounded hope. And I think you just gave us 
everything we've talked about in this conversation, which is more, you know, how do we apply more? How do we see more of the optimistic and how do we see more of the pessimistic? And in that depth, how can we find more energy and power and, and willingness to do better? Um, and so mm. it's, again, the cyclical growth of just wanting to be more here for it. And as we are more here for it, we can ground ourselves further um, and get to more action. And that's what we call, again, being an optimist in action. Um, we don't think that we just sit back and hope for things to happen because that's not how change come about. But we we look at ourselves in the world and say, okay, times it's it's time. So mm. let's do it. Um, Perez, Ben, this has been incredible. Thank you again so much. Everyone needs to head over uh, to my show notes and find the book and uh, buy, buy your book today so we can all learn what it means to strive for a, a healthy green growth. Um, and I thank you on behalf of the whole world for your work and um, all your wisdom. Likewise. Thank you for doing all this, Anna Teresa, and uh, reaching out and uh, being a voice for that new direction that we now need uh, everywhere. So I wish you all the best. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Hey Change podcast. If you'd like to support the show, please share this episode with friends, family, or someone in your network. Also, don't forget to give it five stars in the app so that we can reach more listeners just like you. We love hearing from our listeners, so please tag us when you share this episode on social media. We'd love to connect with you and learn about what you are doing too. You can find where to reach us in the show notes. Before you go, we'd like to invite you to pause and to leave you with this one final question. What does being an optimist in action mean to you?